choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Please be seated. And we thank you, God, for this text at this time in our lives. May your Holy Spirit help us as we interact with what's going on in our lives, with what's going on in our thought lives, with what's going on in our church, with what's going on in our world, and especially, Lord, let us interact with your text and your words to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Something I heard from somebody, and I usually bring this into, like, premarital counseling. Uh, sometimes, I guess, it's good for postmarital counseling, too. It's a reminder, uh, somebody said, opposites attract, and then opposites attack. And that's true. And so you say, what drew me to this person uh, that, that I needed in my life, uh, all of a sudden, uh, now there's a conflict over that. But I heard another one. And this one's more interesting, and maybe this one's a little more cynical. This was, to me, it was funny. And I apologize. I, I don't think I've shared this uh, with, with, in a sermon. But um, somebody said this. A woman marries a man thinking he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman thinking she, will, she won't change, 
but she does. And that actually, people chuckle at that because it's, it's, it's true. You enter into something and you think, this is what I've got uh, forever and ever. And life changes and we kind of become like each other. We push and pull and all that. If we're in that kind of a relationship, uh, think about us when we become Christians and we enter into this contract, this covenant relationship with God. A person becomes a Christian thinking that the God who saved him or her will never change. And God doesn't change. But that Christian at some point faces a crisis where he thinks God has changed. And we do question God and we say, wait a minute, I kind of signed up for this and this God isn't the same God that I uh, committed to when I repented and confessed and placed my faith in, in God through Jesus. A Christian at some point faces that crisis where he thinks God has changed and God, true to form, comes along to remind his son or daughter and reassure them that he hasn't changed. We go through this in our lives. Uh, this is not a rare phenomenon. This is not an only time this ever occurs in Scripture, it being here in Psalm 77. It's there enough in Scripture because it's there enough in our lives. And the hope this morning and the point this morning is to say there are enough things that can scare us. Don't be afraid. Our sermon series is God is still on the throne. It's being preached to help us with our day-to-day crises of faith and to prepare us for a great broad crisis in the world that may be coming. We don't know what God is going to do. We see signs. Uh, When Churchill wrote his six volumes on World War II, once it was all done, one of those was called The Gathering Storm. And it may be that we are sensing a gathering storm. That storm might break up. You know, you look at your phone and you go, seven-day forecast, it's going to snow on Wednesday. And you're, you're geared up for snow on Wednesday and you're kind of planning, maybe that's the day you stop at the store on your way home from work and you say, i got to do that on Tuesday instead. But then two days later you look and that forecast didn't happen. And that's either pushed off or you get surprised. We don't know what's going to happen. But there is a gathering storm and there is a fearfulness among believers and non-believers alike that something's not right and something is building. Like when you go outside and you can just smell it in the air that something's happening. This sermon series is to help us and prepare us for if it happens and even to reassure us now that what we sense is not the end of the world. God is still on the throne. God is always on the throne. I hope you never, ever get to the same level of despair that Asaph felt and prompted him to write Psalm 77. But if you do, there are principles this morning that you're going to hear that will help you in those times. To say that I hope you never ever have a 
time of doubt would be like saying, I hope you never, ever get the flu. You're going to get it. You've got it. You, you will get it. It's just something that goes around, and we take our turns with it. So there is despair, but I hope you never have the deep despair. Let's dive into this important text this morning. It's immensely practical for us. There's three points. The nature of despair, the nature of history, and the nature of God. First of all, the nature of despair. Let's look at the despair that this psalmist has. It's in a series of psalms. What is it? 73 to 83, I think. A psalm of Asaph. Um, Just a a side note. Uh, When you get to the psalms and it says a psalm of David or a psalm of the sons of Korah or a psalm of Asaph, that actually is inspired text. In your Hebrew text, that's verse 1. And then what we have is verse 1 is actually verse 2. So that's not a study note and that's not a conjecture. We can say it's part of Scripture. This is a psalm of Asaph. He wrote several of them. There's 10 of them right in here in the middle. Uh, Three or four of them talk about his despair and crying out to the Lord. Others talk about the greatness of God. I think it would make a good study for uh, you uh, or me or any of us, a sermon series, to just look at this section of psalms. It's most likely regarding the taking of Jerusalem. It's most likely about God's people in exile. God had promised to take care of his people. That's a promise God made throughout. You'll be my people and I'll be your God over and over again. And he's looking now and saying, what happened to God's people? They're gone. They're dispersed. Uh, It's in shatters. This promised land has been overrun. And he's got a personal despair, of course, but he's despairing for the state of God's people. And he's questioning whether God is a liar or not. This is God's people, his Old Testament church, if you will. Not everyone in the Old Testament who was, quote-unquote, God's people, who was part of Israel, uh, were saved, as we would say it. Just like not everyone who goes to a church somewhere or has become a member somewhere of some church or puts some money in the offering plate or even uh, does something in the name of the church is a Christian necessarily. Not all are true believers, just like the church today. There's a professing Christians and there's practicing Christians, actual Christians. And the equivalent of him despairing over what has happened to God's people would be like us when we look at our churches that say things and do things that are absolutely contrary to God and God's word. And we can despair when we look and see a great denomination, for instance, that's been established on Scripture go down, and it's a cycle. And we see these things just cycle down, and we can get weary. I used to get a website, uh, an updated page, and it was good on the one hand, but it was just bringing me down. Um, updates on what these churches and what these pastors and people are doing. You need to see these things on the one hand and realize there's a lot of wickedness uh, that goes on in the name of God. But boy, it's depressing. And you can despair. 
And he was despairing. What is happening around the world to God's church? What's coming in our own nation? What foes are there within and without? And so he, uh, by his description, crying aloud to God, stretching out his hands, refusing to be comforted, but understand his despair was personal. Look at the personal pronouns throughout Psalm. I cry aloud. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. I moan. My spirit fails. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Let me remember my song. There is a personal despair. This is more than just the occasional crisis of doubt that someone has. He's doubting God's very words. Now we can doubt. There's a difference between unbelief and doubt. That's very true. We have our moments where we say, wait a minute, what's going on? Uh, Somebody can come along and and they think they're so smart and they can trip us up uh, and they can ask us some puzzling question about some Bible text. Uh, Seminary one time, uh, Dr. Kistenmacher said, why in, and I forget which gospel it was, why is blind Bartimaeus by himself, but then two gospels later, this, it's got to be the same account. Jesus is going the same way. Why does it talk about two blind beggars there and one here? Does this mean the Bible's not true and they were copycatting? And we'd have to, we'd have to look and, and see. He said, I don't want you to have to know. He says, no, no human being can have the answer for every little textual question at the top of their head whenever some skeptic asks. But he said, you need to know these things have been asked and answered, and there are answers for this. For instance, another one that I'm just thinking of. uh, At the start of Jesus' ministry, uh, in one of the Gospels, the very start, he cleans out the temple. But in the other Gospel, it happens that he overturns the tables at the end of his ministry. Does this mean the Bible's not true? Well, boy, if you wanted a reason to not have to do God's, God's will and submit to God, you could just jump on something like that and say, see, none of it's true. Or you can explore and find the answer. There's a doubt and there's a question. There's things that come to us. And those are a different kind of doubt than this doubting despair that he had. I'm reading a book by a woman named Alyssa Childers. It's called Another Gospel with a Question Mark. A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Uh, She grew up in a church. She went on mission trips. She saw faithful, consistent, godly parenting. She said before they even called it social justice, we were just doing it, doing what the Bible said. And we didn't put a political name on it. I grew up with it, but she said I just never questioned. She was in a a Christian singing group that traveled the country and and all of that. Here's what she said. She said, uh, we've all heard stories of Christian kids who walk away from their faith after being challenged by skeptical professors in a college classroom. My faith was confronted in a similar way, but not at a university. It was challenged in the pews of a church. It was rocked by a pastor who won my trust, respect, and loyalty. This wasn't some random weirdo I'd met during a street outreach on Hollywood Boulevard who spouted vitriol against God as I handed him a gospel tract. This was an educated, intellectual, calm, and eloquent church leader, someone who expressed love for Jesus. 
He was a brilliant communicator, and he had a bone to pick with Christianity. Meeting after meeting, every precious belief I held about God, Jesus, and the Bible was placed on the intellectual chopping block and hacked to pieces. Identifying himself as a quote-unquote hopeful agnostic, this pastor began examining the tenets of the faith. The virgin birth doesn't matter. The resurrection probably happened, but you don't have to believe in it. The atonement, that would be a nope. And the Bible, God forbid that you believed scripture was inerrant. He pointed out that even the high schoolers had moved beyond that primitive notion. During our discussions, many in the class dismissed fundies, fundamentalists, as fearful dimwits who simply followed what they were told to believe. And she goes on and on to talk about that kind of despair. And the whole book is about how she looked at the answers to that and God strengthened her faith. And she makes the point to doubt, to hear these things and go, wait a minute, and to diligently seek and search is one thing. Unbelief is another. Asaph in Psalm 77 isn't talking about that kind of doubt. He's talking about what he's seen with his own eyes and a God who promised to be the loving, faithful God has brought something terrible into his life and in the life of the other believers. And he is doubting God's very word about God's love, about God's ability to protect his people. What happens when circumstances contradict the love of God or seem to contradict the love of God? You became a Christian. How? What were those circumstances? Repentance and faith. God gives you these wonderful gifts. And you saw and you believed the truth that Christianity does equal a changed life. A life is changed and transformed. Uh, The Bible says old things have passed away, all things become new. When you became a Christian, uh, through that repentance uh, and that faith in in Jesus, uh, there was a new life that was promised and, and a new life that was given. And you felt it and you knew it. You saw things differently. And then the human assumption came in, perhaps, sometimes it does, that all your troubles will be gone and all your earthly dreams will come true. Vote for Pedro. You ever seen that movie, Napoleon Dynamite? Vote for Pedro and all your wishes will come true. You make that vote, everything that you want will happen. Vote for Jesus and all your wishes will come true. Ah, We tend to believe that, and people even promise that. But in actuality, when you became a Christian, your life was transformed. But the world was not. The world is still the same old, decaying, godless world headed for destruction. You were changed. Your destination was different. Your passport was stamped. Uh, instead Instead of your headed toward hell, you were headed toward heaven. But the world is still going that way. That's why in Acts, uh, we were begged, Peter saying, save yourself from this godless generation. But we start to think that getting saved, getting transformed means that there will be no external trouble in our life. 
that God's our, our ace in the hole. And then when trouble comes, we say maybe none of that was true. And maybe God's a liar. A real physical crisis. There's real doubt. Maybe we question God's power. Maybe we question God's love. Or maybe we question ourselves as an object of God's love. Someone used this phrase. Think about this, and I'll try not to mumble through it. (laughs) He said, in the life of this psalmist, he said, canonical memory collides with concrete pain. The memory of our scriptural canon, what we have seen, some of us from kids, the Bible stories about how God takes care of his people, and all of a sudden there's a collision between what we know of God, what we've believed about God, with our actual concrete pain. Part of what God does to help alleviate that pain didn't in Psalm 77, is he uses us to come alongside when people are hurting and doubting. Or he uses other people to come alongside us when we are hurting and doubting. Uh, This is part of what Jesus meant when he said, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Practically, and I really liked what uh, Dave said with Abishek and Tina last week, that one of the things he admired is they just came to church. Just come to church. Practically, that's one way to help alleviate the despair. Because when you're going through your times like that, at least you can look around and you can hear other voices singing like they mean it and confessing like you confessed. And we help each other just by showing up. It helps intellectually. It helps in our soul. It's not just looking for a buzz. You know, it's not like the Lawrence Welk show. Hey, we got a good program for you planned today. We're going to get you moving and tapping your toes. And and here's Bobby and Sissy. They're going to do a little dance and song. And this person's going to play this. And we got a good program lined up for you guys, so you can feel something. It's not that so much as it is. Come. Come. Be strengthened. Let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's work. Recognizing we take our turns and we pray and we love and we encourage and we do what we can. In this case, Asaph was alone and he's despairing. So what's the next thing? There's a practical nature of despair, but how about the the nature of history? There's a hinge in this psalm. Psalm 77 Roles and uh, you know they've divided it into paragraphs and I'm not sure um, I don't know enough I'm not as well versed in, in in my Hebrew to know but if you look at the divisions of these verses and choruses quite likely in your Bible you have a couple of verses at the start where he's describing himself in his despair then you've got a couple of verses at the end longer blocks of of, of words. But right in the middle is the hinge, verse 10. And this is the hinge, and it's understanding history. Uh, He is despairing. The tide turns in verse 10 when he says this, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. That's the hinge. 
when he stops looking at himself, stops taking his temperature every hour, stops charting what he's feeling, stops about himself and says, I'm going to do this. I am really going to turn and look at God and not at myself. It had been about himself in verses 1 through 9 with God as the supporting character. And most of us, if we admit it, we'd say, I am the star of my own movie. (laughs) It's a movie and there's dialogue and there's all these things in the past. It's this long series of movies. It's all about me. And and I'm going to nominate God for best supporting actor in my movie. And that's how we live. I think. It's how I live. It's how most people I know live when we're not careful. All about himself and his despair in verses 1 through 9. And it wasn't working. He was doing what we call navel-gazing. Sitting there looking at his navel, uh, the meaning excessive introspection, self-absorption, or concentration on a single issue, excessive focus on oneself. How am I doing spiritually? How am I feeling spiritually? How am I doing this? How am I doing this? Me, 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 I, I, I. And he could not fend off the despair. All he could do is chronicle it. All he could do was go on social media and tell everybody about it if he had had that. And he said, wait a minute. I'm going to stop looking at myself in that way as if I am the center of everything and everything has to revolve around me. I will appeal to this. I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Understand, uh, this is how we were born, to look out for ourselves. This is why Jesus could say, love your neighbor as yourself, and we would get it. This is why he could say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, because we all know how we would want people to do unto us. So he could use this as a way, this self-preservation, this self-love that we have. Boy, we make excuses for ourselves, but we are so intolerant of everybody else. We can make an excuse for ourselves. And he says, I'm going to stop looking at myself. I'm going to look at God. I'm going to see history, not as the history of Dave, but the history of God and God's work in the world. And where does Dave plug into that history? What has God done in the past? Here, Asaph, in his despair over God's people's current estate, looks to see, and specifically in this psalm, he looked to see how God had taken care of his people in an equally despairing situation. Yeah, it was bad during Asaph's time for God's people, but it was pretty bad when they were slaves in Egypt. And it was really bad when God delivered them and they thought it was all over with. And then they came up to the Red Sea and there was no way out and they were going to get slaughtered there. What a cruel joke that God did. Stirring up these Egyptians, killing their firstborn for no blood on the door. What was the point of all of that if we're just going to get uh, run into the sea and, and slaughtered by these angry, vengeful Egyptians? They don't want to bring us back as slaves anymore to build their uh, stuff. They want to kill us. And there was despair then. And he looked in his despair at the times then 
to see what God did then. And as he looked at history properly, brought him out of his funk. History is what? Old Dr. Foynt, who's in heaven, would always just say this, and it was like, you know, we're paying seminary money to hear this guy say this. History is his story. <laughs> you know, I could have got that at home. But history is his story. History as it unfolds is God's story. Look at history properly. Not with you as the center of it, but with God as the center of it, doing great and mighty things and, and bringing people along in love. Look at it that way. And there's something bigger that, that pulls us out of our little self-centered uh, despair. He went to this portion. Exodus 15, 11 through 18. Uh, right after God had drowned Pharaoh and his chariots in the sea. And Moses said this, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of, and he gives these other countries, but we could, we could put the names of countries that we see uh, in our world today. But I'll just give the old countries, but why don't you substitute uh, some of these quote-unquote strong countries that think they're so great. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. Interesting language in Exodus of God buying people. Uh, That's New Testament language. That's you. You were purchased by God bought with his own blood, bought with a price, Scripture says. And you know what? Nothing can happen to you that a loving God who bought you and redeemed you wants to happen. Moses continued, You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. And he went up on on to say, the Lord reigns forever and ever. And all of a sudden, Asaph stops feeling lonely and self-absorbed, but sees that he's part of a group of people who are loved and saved by God. If you're in despair, as I've been in despair, and when it comes my turn again, uh, Lord willing, help me see this God. Help me realize it's not just me. Help me realize that there's something personal and specific about me that God loves and redeemed, but God redeemed me and saved me to make me part of people, part of his people, group of people loved and saved by God. It's where we start to talk about the gaze and the glance. Most of us, when we are in despair, gaze at our problems. Boy, they're high. They're hard. And we'll give a glance at God. 
Asaph turned it around and he said, I'm going to glance at my problems and I'm going to gaze at God and I'm going to see who God is and what God's capable of. And my understanding of history is my own history folds into God's history. So let's take a moment and gaze at God right now, the nature of God as we close things up, the attributes of God. We talked about this and we're talking about this in kids' Sunday school. Um, Sunday school for the kids. We're going through our worship service. It's a pretty good, great program and great things. Uh, we've started out with uh, um, call to worship and what's that? Why do we have that in a worship service? All that. We're on the praise part now. Why do we praise God in worship? Why is God worthy of our praise? And we talked last two weeks ago about the, the attributes of God. These kids are pretty sharp, and they gave some words: omnipotent. Omnipotent. What is it about God? Omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Omniscient. Well, I see the word science in there. I see like omni-science. Omniscient. All-knowing. Hey, there's the science. You want to say the science? Say it about God and omniscient. God knows all. Take God all-powerful. God all-knowing. And then one of the kids, and I was surprised that they came. I was happily, pleasantly surprised. And I said, I shouldn't have been. Omnipresent. God is everywhere. My brother uh, texts me this morning and says, pray for Connie and her dad because her mom just died. I texted back. I said, I will pray after church because right now I'm going to pray that God is with us in our service. And so I don't want God to be there comforting her and and that because our service matters. Did I say that? It would be stupid. God can be here and God can be there. God is present everywhere. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. And then you take what you know about God and God's relationship to his people, not the Moabites and the Philistines and the people that hate him, that are against him, that, that have identified themselves as his enemy. But how about the attitude of God toward his people, toward you? And he says things like this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And the involvement that God has with you is personal. And God can do that because God is God. He's sovereign and he's loving to his people. And there's a good combination. You want to be on his side. You want to be his person. You want to be his daughter. You want to be the one who he knows your address and he lovingly says, I'm going to take care of you. Doesn't seem too good right now. But it's the best because I'm God and I'm your God. As we close, uh, I said this isn't the only place in Scripture. A contemporary of Asaph is, in the, is a writer of a, one of the minor prophets named Habakkuk. Habakkuk had the same types of despairs and gave the same answers. And these are answers as we wrap this up and go to the table that we need. Start of Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or how long will I cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. 
for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Is that not what we feel sometimes when we just scan the news? The next couple of chapters of Habakkuk uh, include this great dialogue. It's famous in church history. It's what God used Martin Luther uh, there and then again in Romans. The just shall live by faith. But Habakkuk is hearing all this and he's talking back and forth with God and he's crying in his despair as we can cry in our despair. And it ends up this way. Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Watch and see what's planned for Christians. Watch and see what's planned for regular people by the powerful. See what's going on. See how, uh, you know, when a woman gets pushed in front of a train because of her race, and you find the person who did that, and you go, he should have been, why is he out there? And multiply that by a million, and you go, what in the world? How do, how do the real, regular people have a chance? And these things, and we feel these despairing things, and there's nothing we can do we feel like. We say to God, where are you, God? What's happening? And God has this dialogue with us, and he brings us to the place where we say, there's something going on in the mind of God, and God is not a liar, and God is not forgotten his people. And right after, Habakkuk talks about his legs trembling beneath him. He says, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, you could say, though inflation hits the highest level in 50 years in our country. Though the fields yield no food, <laughs> empty shelves. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Though we are going through a tough time and getting ready to go through a tough time. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Listen, this is all external. There's a reason why uh, I use a very unconventional text, and I, I was telling, I think Paul I was talking to, I, I use this as a benediction. It's like I've never heard it as a benediction anywhere in my life, in any place, about the outer self wasting away and the inner self being renewed. Most benedictions are the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord, and I keep wanting to change it, but I can't because we need to hear this. We need to have it tattooed in our brain. We need this as our parting word as we enter, exit into the world that God is with us in a difficult time. God's with us in good times. He's with us in difficult times. And you need to hear this this morning. You are loved. You are God's people. You will be all right, no matter what. Final passage. Where we close our eyes and pray and make this transition. 
this would be a good one to write down, look up later, and memorize. Psalm 37.25, the psalmist says, I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. I've been young, now I'm old. I've lived this long life, I've watched all this stuff, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken by God or his children begging for bread. You are going to be all right because God is love for his people. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God has saved you. He's bought you. You're his choice people. And and, and you get to see the bigger picture. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little church. God's got it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these reminders. Thank you for an eternal perspective. Help us to help each other in our despair, but help us to turn to you. Thank you that you are the centerpiece, that you are the God who brings us ultimate joy. Thank you for our destination. Thank you for whatever it is uh, we get to go through. Thank you for every brilliantly sunny day. Thank you for every good ball game we get to watch and cheer and enjoy. Uh, Thank you for every wonderful piece of music you've allowed people to uh, write and play for us. Thank you for everything good. But Lord, help us as we see this world for what it is and where it's headed. And Lord, thank you for heaven. Thank you for these pictures of heaven on the way, but thank you for our destination. We thank you that things are sure and sealed up as long as you are God, which is eternity past, eternity future. In Jesus' name, amen.